0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
1: Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 336, Chris Dates' Search for a Viable Trinity Theory, Part 1. In this podcast, I'm going to interact with Theopologetics video podcast number 28, which is entitled, Can an Orthodox Doctrine of the Trinity Be Logically Coherent? You'll recall that a couple of years ago, I had a debate face-to-face with Chris State in Minnesota, and it was a good debate, and it resulted in a longer book version of the debate entitled, Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? A Debate. And if you want to check that out, I'll put a link to that book on the blog post for this podcast at trinities.org. It's a good and substantial debate. It's challenging. It's hard-hitting. And for the most part, we behave very well, although we get grumpier as the book goes along. And since the debate, I believe, he has become an adjunct professor at the online Trinity Seminary. So again, I've got a link for that in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org if you're curious about that. I really did like Chris Date. I admire what he's done in rethinking the traditional Catholic doctrine of hell as an eternal conscious torment. In a large body of work, including the website RethinkingHell.org, Chris Date, following some earlier evangelical scholars, defends the thesis that the Bible is best understood as teaching what he calls conditionalism or conditional immortality In short, God doesn't need to keep sinners who reject him around forever just so they can suffer for an infinitely long time, but at some point he'll bring an end to their existence. And I think this is a plausible and reasonable view, and I admire the stand that he's taken for it. I think that he's made a good case for it, and I admire his willingness to pay the price for making that case. Because, in the eyes of many conservatives— This is kind of edging a little bit close towards what they would consider heresy. I could tell even before the debate that Chris Date is a thinker. He listens to arguments and tries to evaluate them. And that automatically puts him on a different level than some of the people he admires, like, for instance, Dr. James White. So I was interested to find out not too long ago that Chris Date has an upcoming live online debate with a guy who calls himself the Muslim Metaphysician. This debate will be on December 4th, 2021, and their debate topic will be, Can an Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity be logically coherent? Not a bad thesis to debate, and in preparation for the debate, Chris Date put out this podcast in which he shares some of his latest thoughts on the topic. And in so doing, I think he's acting like a truth seeker, He's treating the matter seriously, he's thinking out loud, and he's inviting feedback to his speculations. And so in this episode, I'm going to join in the fun and try to think through this with him and give him some helpful feedback. Now, one thing that he's presupposing, and he basically says this towards the end, is that God being Trinity is really an uncontroversial implication of the Bible. Like, if you accept the Bible as inspired and true, you therefore must accept that God is three persons in one essence. Of course, I beg to differ, but for the sake of argument, I'm going to grant him that. Suppose that's right. Suppose a Christian ought to be fairly sure about that. Okay, but what is this doctrine of the Trinity, and is it incoherent, like does it imply contradictions, or not? So that's the game that we're playing here. Can we construct a self-consistent theory, given the assumption that the Bible implies something like the Athanasian Creed? And of course, for the sake of time, I'll be editing this and shortening it a little bit, but I'll try not to leave out anything that's essential to what we're interested in here. So let's hear how Chris Date sets up this discussion.
0: I'm going to offer what I think is a sensible, defensible doctrine of the Trinity.
1: So here's how Mr. Date describes the thesis of his upcoming debate with Jake the Muslim metaphysician.
0: That thesis that we'll be debating, that I'll be affirming and that he'll be denying, can an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity be logically coherent? This was um, something that we worked together to come up with. The Muslim metaphysician... And other Unitarians like Dale Tuggy, they make a really big deal about there being supposedly multiple doctrines of the Trinity. Now, most of us Trinitarians, I think, would say that's baloney. There aren't (laughs) multiple doctrines of the Trinity. What there are are different variations of a core Trinity doctrine. So there's a core Trinity doctrine that then gets expressed in, fleshed out, in, nuanced by competing variations or variants of that core doctrine.
1: Quick comment on that. Yeah, I think it is fair to say that I make a fairly big deal out of there being competing Trinity doctrines, because this shows that there is no real deep, long-standing consensus here, and it also shows that God has not revealed any such theology to the Christian church, any more than he's revealed one theory of atonement or one theory of divine providence. And they really are different doctrines. If you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and you look at my entry there, which is about different of these Trinity theories or Trinity doctrines, if you take out the Mysterian ones, if any one of them is true, then any of the others must be false, just by logic. So if you have two theories, and if one of them being completely true implies that the other one has at least one falsehood in it, then no, they're not the same doctrine. They're not the same theory. If they were the same, they'd have the same truth conditions. Now you might think, now come on, there's a core to any Trinity doctrine, and as long as that core is the same, well, some of the other bits might differ. Yeah, that sounds like it makes sense, but the core of any Trinity doctrine includes those credibly required sentences, such as that there are three divine, quote, persons, and these three divine persons have quote, one essence, and that the Father, Son, and Spirit, in some sense, are one God. But those three different things I just said there, there are clashing interpretations of all of those. So, what is in common to all of these clashing doctrines, these clashing theologies, they have in common the language that they're trying to give a true interpretation of that traditional Catholic language, They have in common a vague idea that god is in some sense tri-personal and that's about it there is a common aim there a common program that's true each one is trying to give an overall defensible outgrowth of ancient catholic tradition but yeah you can't really individuate claims or theories or doctrines by intentions What makes a doctrine the doctrine it is, is which claims it includes.
0: For the sake of argument, let's say that there are multiple doctrines of the Trinity. Well, I didn't want to debate... Is the doctrine of the Trinity logically coherent? Because that's just playing into my opponent's hands, who says there is no the doctrine of the Trinity. There are doctrines of the Trinity, some of which may be orthodox, others of which may be logically coherent, but none of which are both. That's what I think my opponent would say, that you do a survey of all the various models of the Trinity doctrine, and you're going to find that to a T, every one of them is either unorthodox or illogical.
1: Well, yeah, that might be right. Maybe that's his argument strategy. Of course, as we'll see, to say what is required for a Trinity theory to be orthodox is actually very difficult.
0: So I proposed something like, and and then we fleshed it out to what it looks like now, can an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity be logically coherent? So what I will be doing is offering what I take to be one doctrine of the Trinity or model of the Trinity that is both orthodox and logically coherent, but I'm not defending it as the only possible such doctrine of the Trinity. There, plausibly, are others, especially if the one I offer is, in fact, both orthodox and logically coherent. That would suggest that there may be others.
1: Mm. I don't think that follows. I'm going to be presenting a
0: model of the Trinity that I take to be both Orthodox and logically coherent.
1: Again, just a brief comment. It's important to see for that upcoming debate that the bar has been set very, very low. It's just that, is there any Trinity theory, which seems to be logically coherent and also seems to be Orthodox. So he's not saying that the theory is true He's not saying it's reasonable. He's not saying that it best fits the Bible. He's not saying that there aren't overwhelming objections to it. He's only just saying one thing, that if you want to say that all doctrines of the Trinity that should count as orthodox are incoherent, in other words, that they imply a contradiction, if you want to say they're all incoherent in that way, then aha, no, they're not. Because here, I've got one that isn't why you might ask is this an interesting exercise i think it would be most interesting if the main or the only reason people reject trinity theories is because they perceive them to be logically incoherent that is to imply one or more contradictions of course there are some people out there like that who just say look the trinity is a contradictory doctrine or any version of it you can come up with is going to be self-contradictory. Okay, then this would be a kind of negative defense against that. It's like, well, maybe there are some contradictory ones out there, but you can't show that all the orthodox ones are contradictory because this one here that I've got seems to be both coherent and orthodox still it wouldn't be of a lot of interest unless it was plausible that that same doctrine was taught by the bible right because the trinity is supposed to be a doctrine of divine revelation it's supposed to be something that the one god has revealed about himself through christian scripture and in fact it has always been the case that most opposition to trinity theories is scripture-based These are objections to the effect that, first, scripture doesn't support any such trinity theory, and second, that any such theory contradicts the New Testament teaching that the one God just is the Father alone. But again, setting aside all concerns about scripture and Christian history, if you can come up with something that seems to be an orthodox trinity theory and it doesn't imply a contradiction, that is interesting. Of course, then we'd have to come back to these scriptural questions, I think. But again, let's play the game, see how it goes.
0: Let's start with what it means for a doctrine of the Trinity to be orthodox. I would say, generally speaking, when we ask if a doctrine of the Trinity is orthodox, what we mean is, does it cohere with the early ecumenical creeds that collectively and progressively define the doctrine of the Trinity?
1: Yes, I agree. I think that is what most people mean. And just notice here that the Bible has been set off to one side. We're now using as our criterion meetings of Catholic bishops starting in the 4th century and going on into the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, etc.,
0: so the Nicene Creed, for example, confesses that we believe the in A, Father, Creed, to B, be clear. Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God, being of one substance, sometimes called essence, the Greek word is ousia, with the Father, and C, the Holy Ghost, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So we could start with that abbreviation of the Nicene Creed, and we would get... Three truths that partially comprise an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Those three truths being the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God.
1: Well, those are three sentences, but until we give an interpretation of the little word is in each one of those, we haven't specified a particular truth for each of those three.
0: But there's more. The Chalcedonian Creed, or the Creed of Chalcedon, or the Chalcedonian symbol or definition or From definition the year 451, or symbol of Chalcedon, however you want yes. to put it, it also says that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, consubstantial or co-essential with the Father.
1: Well, that's just repeating what was said at the 381 Creed.
0: The Greek word here is hamaousios. Uh, not hamoi usias. That was a part of the debate that was what was reconciled by this creed or confession. Um, hamoi usias would be similar substance or comparable substance or substance of the same kind. Hama usias means same substance. Not like substance, but same substance.
1: Same substance. Right. So now we have another technical term that until we specify what that means, we don't really know what it means to say that, for instance, the father and son are the same substance. The same substance in what sense? Okay, let's see what he says. So
0: we need to add a fourth truth to our list of truths that constitute an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, namely the father, the son, and the spirit share one substance. Or to put it simply, there is one only, there's only one God.
1: Notice that so far, although he says he's listing truths, he is in fact just listing required formulas which cry out for an interpretation. So far, he's giving us required language. Okay, but now he's going to turn to interpret that key term, substance.
0: By the way, substance here is substance in in the in philosophical jargon. Substance in the jargon of philosophy means something like concrete object or concrete entity.
1: Well, that's one thing that it means. So, he thinks he's just telling you what the creeds say, but in fact, he's introducing a very heavy interpretive decision here. And there's a whole chapter in my book, What is the Trinity?, about what could it possibly mean to say that the three of them are homoousion, or one substance, or one essence. But the way Chris Date interprets it is that if you mention the Father, Son, and Spirit, that there's only one God between them. To share one substance is for there to be only one God among that group, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, what he's right about is... Is that it was a part of the tradition going back to the two Gregories right before the 381 council there was an interpretation that had developed of thinking that the nicene claim that the father and son are one usia somehow entails that they're the same god or that they're in the same god so this one substance claim is supposed to somehow help us get monotheism out of all this right but what is meant by substance if a substance is a universal essence like humanity or caninity the quality of being a dog if there are three things each of which has caninity that's just to say there are three dogs if there are three things each of which has humanity that's just to say that there are three human beings and so likewise if substance here means a universal quality universal essence Then, if there are three things each of which has the essence divinity that's just to say that there are three gods okay but he's not taking it that way he's interpreting substance in the sense of what aristotle in ancient times called first substance where substance isn't a quality or a defining essence but it's an individual thing of a certain kind so, in this sense of the word, usia, or substance, I'm a substance, you're a substance, Chris Date is a substance. That's just to say, I'm an individual thing, you're an individual thing, and he's an individual thing. So, when he says, the Father, Son, and Spirit share one substance, he means that there is, between them, just one thing, one individual reality, one God. But that's not what the second and fourth ecumenical councils say it is an interpretation of their words though and it's a very controversial one if the father and son are the same god then why wouldn't they be the same in every way but let's let him continue
0: but there's more the athanasian creed which isn't really if I remember correctly, a creed that Athana- Athanasius actually wrote. It's more a creed that faithfully captures the doctrine of the Trinity as taught by Athanasius during the period of time where it was Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, when most of the rest of Christendom was sliding into the heresy of Arianism.
1: Oi! So he repeats the little orthodox myth uh, about how Athanasius, thank goodness, saved the day single-handedly. Set that aside. Mr. Date needs to do a little bit more homework about the Athanasian Creed. And in this regard, let me recommend Trinity's podcast 2, the, quote, Athanasian Creed. All scholars today recognize that the Athanasian Creed is not by Athanasius, as he says. No, it doesn't summarize Athanasius' teaching because it clearly reflects the ideas of Augustine who didn't convert to Christianity until after Athanasius was dead. So it's from sometime in the 400s. It doesn't reflect what Athanasius was arguing for, or even what was current you know, in the 370s leading up to the 381 Council, now called the Second Ecumenical Council. It's from the 400s. And it clearly reflects the ideas of augustine writing in the early 400s so it's from sometime in the mid 400s probably but a protestant should ask a couple of things about the athanasian creed first of all why on earth would we want to accept it because it appears to be self-contradictory and further it's not in any sense a document that resulted from an ancient consensus We don't actually know the origin of the so-called Athanasian Creed. Of course, it's been accepted in these latter days by some ill-advised Protestants and others. But given that, it seems to reflect the speculations of Augustine, and it seems to be incoherent. And also, it's morally a ridiculous document, in that it merrily damns anyone to hell who doesn't accept these crazy speculations that it outlines. And this is not a position that most thoughtful Christian apologists today defend. For more on this topic, check out Trinity's podcast, 286. Is the Trinity essential? Three views. But okay, many people do this. They suppose that somehow this document that comes from who knows where, that's misnamed, that's morally ridiculous, and that seems to contradict itself, somehow this is our standard for what counts as a good Trinity doctrine. All right, let's roll with it. What does he think this adds to what's been said before?
0: And the Creed says we believe in one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons. There's more there that we'll get to in a minute. But this language of confounding the persons means not confusing them one for the other. They're distinct from one another, always. And why this is important is because of one common heretical uh, bad analogy for the relationship between the persons and being in the Trinity. Wayne Grudem offers a form of the analogy like this. You might have a man who is a farmer, a mayor, and an elder. But such a man is only one person. They're just doing three activities at different times. And of course the analogy can't deal with the personal interaction among members of the Trinity. This is a fairly uh, stock accepted understanding of modalism, the heresy of modalism, according to which well, uh, there is only one person in God, and that person is the Father in some circumstances, the Son in others, and the Holy Spirit in others. Or the Father in some contexts, the Son in other contexts, the Holy Spirit in other contexts. This analogy that is modalistic wouldn't satisfy the language of the creed, which says that we don't confound the persons. They are distinct persons.
1: Yeah, I think he's right, but you could actually make this point and leave the so-called Athanasian creed off to one side. It was clearly part of the intentions of the people who came up with the Nicene Creed that it should not imply the numerical sameness of the persons of the Trinity. That is, it shouldn't collapse them into numerically one thing. They meant to reject what historians refer to as modalistic monarchian forms of theology, which did collapse them. Now, the way that Chris Date chose to describe what it is that's wrong with this sort of account of the Trinity is interesting, and we might need to come back to it, because it may be relevant to what he's going to say later. But at any rate, now he adds a fifth point, which is just that the three, none of those is numerically the same as any of the others.
0: The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Spirit. In other words, they're eternally distinct from one another
1: when the trinity's podcast returns what about so-called generation and procession
0: More. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Father before all worlds, and that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and and from the Son. Now, there are going to be some Trinitarians who would deny that Jesus Christ is begotten of the Father before all worlds, because they would argue that the biblical language that used to be translated only begotten, the Greek word monogenes, does not mean only begotten, but rather one of a kind. Right. And They would say that when the uh, New Testament says that, that uh, quotes the Father as saying, today I have begotten you, what begotten there refers to is publicly pronouncing the veracity of Jesus' identity and claims or to having raised him from the dead so begotten in that sense refers to something after christ's incarnation many uh, orthodox arguably uh, orthodox trinitarians would say would would deny these these aspects of the father begetting the son before all worlds and the holy spirit proceeding from the father and the son in in that way and I'll leave it to them to reconcile their views with this language of the Nicene Creed. What I want to do here is try to defend a logically coherent doctrine that is orthodox according to these creeds.
1: Right, so we're going to pass by the fact that these modern critics are correct, that there is nothing whatsoever in Scripture that supports these 3rd century and later speculations about eternal generation and eternal proceeding. We're going to ignore that they're correct, because what matters more is just creedal orthodoxy. So the Trinity theory that Mr. Date is going to develop will include these claims of eternal generation and procession.
0: I think the authors of these creeds took begotten of the Father to mean that in eternity past, the Father has always been the ground of the Son's existence. Not that the Father created the Son at some point, in fact, the Creed explicitly denies that the Son was made, He was begotten, according to the Creed. So it's, it's more the language of contingency, the, um, it, it's sort of like, think about the, this is an, anal- an analogy I got from Matt Slick years ago. When he's trying to explain how something can be logically subsequent to something without being temporally subsequent to something, uh, he offers the analogy of a light bulb. A light bulb, it's a glass bulb inside of which is a filament, and when electricity flows through the filament, the filament produces light. Well, what does that mean? It means the light, even though it's produced at the same time that electricity flows through the filament, mm, the light is the being, in other words, it's temporally simultaneous with the flowing of the electricity through the filament. No. But it's not logically Simultaneous, It's logically subsequent to electricity flowing through the wire, or the filament. Well, in the same way, the creed seems to be saying that the Father is logically antecedent to, before, logically before, foundational of, the Son. So if we want to defend a doctrine of the Trinity that is orthodox in that sense of being coherent with the Nicene Creed, I think we've got to add a sixth truth to our list of truths that comprise a doctrine of the Trinity that is orthodox and that is that the son and the spirit are logically contingent on the father
1: a couple of comments there in talking about this in terms of grounding or logical dependence and i think it's not really logical dependence he means so much as metaphysical dependence right in some sense the son and spirit exist because of the father i think that's what he's actually saying here He's avoiding talking about eternal generation and procession as a kind of eternal or timeless causing. In contrast, Trinitarians like Richard Swinburne just gladly talk about the first divine person causing a second and the two of them cooperating together to cause a third. Somehow this happens all just instantaneously. Matt Slick's analogy is sloppy, The light bulb doesn't come on as soon as the electricity enters the wire. I mean, it might kind of appear that way to us. But instead of reproducing the fully traditional language about generation and procession, which is naturally understood as to be a type of eternal causing, he says the Son and Spirit are logically contingent on the Father. Again, I think what he means to say is that their existence and their deity depend on the Father. So, in other words, there's an explanation for their existence and deity, and that lies in the Father himself. Something like that. Fully Orthodox? Eh, not really. I mean, as William Hasker argues in his book-length Treatment, these speculations about generation and procession are pretty central to ancient Trinitarian traditions. But we're kind of being given a slimmed-down substitute for the traditional claims, but okay. Let's see where he's going with it
0: but there's more <laughs> don't worry this is the last one the athanasian creed says that neither confounding the persons we quoted that earlier but also not dividing the substance
1: what does that mean
0: we're not confusing the persons one for the other they are eternally distinct and yet they don't divide the one substance um, that they all share them sharing it is what makes them hamaousias of the same substance And that same substance that they all share isn't divided between them.
1: Right. So what this avoidance of substance dividing amounts to totally depends on what you think it means to say that they have one substance between them. But now Chris State has given us an interpretation of what that means. To have one substance between them is to have one individual between them, that they are going to be very closely related to. So dividing the substance would be seemingly supposing that the persons are parts of God, parts of this one thing, which is God.
0: Here again, this is what rules out some really problematic analogies of the Trinity. So, for example, Wayne Grudem, he observes the problem with the with an analogy that is favored by some lay Christians, that of a three-leaf clover. He says a three-leaf clover has three parts and yet remains one clover. But the reason this fails is because each leaf is only part of the clover. And any one leaf cannot be said to be the whole clover. That seems to contradict that language that we just saw in the Athanasian Creed. So we need to add a seventh truth to our list of truths that constitute an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not parts of a divisible substance
1: okay well like i said before it's tricky to state anything remotely resembling uncontroversial criteria for a trinity theory being orthodox and by adding this seventh claim that the persons are not parts of a he says divisible substance not sure what that means but i think he i think he means to be saying that they can't be parts of god at all so that even if they were parts, but they couldn't be divided from one another, still, that would be against this claim, I think. So, he says the persons are not parts of a divisible substance. That's just to say that the one God can't be divided into these three parts. Never mind if you could actually separate them. It's just that there aren't any parts there to begin with. I think that's what he's saying.
0: So, this is what I take to be The Criteria for an Orthodox Doctrine of the Trinity. I'm open to there being more, and I'm open to number 6 and number 7 not being a part of this list, but I would have to be shown how 6 and 7 aren't required by the language of Nicaea.
1: Okay, so he knows he's off-roading a little bit. Uh, He's trailblazing a little bit. Usually the list of requirements for Orthodoxy would require a claim that there's only one God. It seems that he's built that into his fourth claim, which is that between the Father, Son, and Spirit, there's only one substance, that is one individual thing, which is to say one God. So, he thinks he's got the one God there. Ruling out parts, claim seven, very controversial. As Mr. Date knows, the most famous Christian apologist in the world, Dr. William Lane Craig, has defended a Trinity theory on which the persons of the Trinity are parts of God. And 6, as he already mentioned, is controversial because people in modern times keep pointing out that there actually is no scriptural basis at all for the traditional eternal generation and eternal procession speculations, which in fact date to the time of origin and novation in the third century. So, a good number of Trinitarians nowadays would say that a Trinity theory should not include anything like Claim 6. In fact, that it conflicts with the full and equal divinity of the Son and Spirit, as he's about to explain.
0: So what I'm going to offer today is a model of the Trinity that I think meets these seven criteria. But let's move now to what it would mean for a doctrine of the Trinity to be logically coherent. So we've got these seven criteria that constitute an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, but whether it's logically coherent, or maybe I should put it this way, what is alleged to be its its logical incoherence is focused on these four truths in our list.
1: One, two, three, and five. In other words, the Father's God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God, and those three really are distinct.
0: More precisely, it hinges on or focuses on this claim that it's logically inco- incoherent, trades on or focuses on these is-as-it-is-nots. The law of transitivity states something like if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. And we might put this another way by saying if X is Y and Y is Z, then X is Z. Now this is just straightforward common sense. It's also a law of transitivity that is obeyed by um, or recognized by mathematicians and logicians, right? So it's a law of both mathematics and logic which some might argue is just one and the same. (laughs) But nevertheless, the point is, is that this is a law of transitivity. If something violates this law, then it would be logically incoherent.
1: Yeah, that's basically right. Um, But in the context of math, the A, B, and C would be variables. And so we're talking about the value of some variable. Right, So if A is 4, and that's equal to B, well, B has to be 4. And if B is equal to C, well, then C is going to have to be the number 4 as well. So yeah, it follows that A is equal to C, both the number 4. But in the context of logic and analytic uh, metaphysics, really what we're talking about is the transitivity of identity. It's the fact that transitivity holds with respect to the numerical identity relation this odd relation that a thing can only bear to itself. So just to give an example of that, he, he says if X is Y and Y is z, e, then X is z. E. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So for example, if Abe just is Abram and Abram just is Abraham, then it follows that Abe just is Abraham. Those are really just all the same guy named in three different ways.
0: The is in this statement is what's called the is of identity. Right. Not just that X is Y-ish and that Y is Z-ish, but that X is Y and Y is Z. Therefore, necessarily, logically, X is Z.
1: Right. That they're one and the same.
0: Well, so plug that back into our um, truths here that we're highlighting, one, two, three, and 5. If is in the truths 1 through 3 is the is of identity then they are logically incoherent with the is nots in truth five, which are the is of identity.
1: Because if the father just is God, the son just is God, the spirit just is God, then follows that the father just is the son, son just is the spirit, the spirit just is the father. And then his claim five would be false because five says that those really are three. They're not one and the same. Yeah.
0: So we're, we're basically violating the law of identity, we're, uh, right, the, or the law of non-contradiction. We're saying that it's possible for, for A to be both B and not B at the same time and in the same way, and, and that, that's, a, that's a problem.
1: Well, to put it more clearly, we'd be saying that the father just is the son, and yet it's false that the father just is the son. Right? That's the contradiction where one affirms and denies one and the same claim. Right, the father being the son would be implied by one and two. The father is God and the son is God, when that's an is of identity. And the father not being the son, or the two being distinct, would be implied by five.
0: Thankfully, there's another use of the word is. So, in the statement, the cat's skeleton is feline and its heart is feline, but its skeleton is not its heart. The first two "is's" are the is of predication. The quality of felinity, the quality of felineness is predicable. It can be attributed to the skeleton. And the same is true of its heart, right? Both its skeleton and its heart, the cats anyway, can be predicated equally, attributed equally to both the cat skeleton and its heart that it is feline.
1: Yes, this is a very controversial example employed by Dr. William Lane Craig, but uh let's be careful here if we're using the word feline to mean felinity in other words the essence of cathood uh, the what it is to be a cat then in that sense the cat's skeleton is not feline because the cat's skeleton is not a cat and then the cat's heart would not be feline if felinity Or being feline implies being a cat, which seems to be like the primary sense of the word, at least in a philosophical context, then those statements would be false. So what are you saying when you say the cat's skeleton is feline? You're saying that this skeleton is typical of a healthy cat or it's the right sort of skeleton a cat should have or something like that. You're saying there's some kind of close relationship between this skeleton and a typical cat. Same thing when you say the heart is feline. You're not saying it is a cat, but you're saying that this heart bears a close relation to at least one cat or to, even to cathood. For a heart to be feline is to be the kind of heart which a cat should have, something like that. And yes, if you're saying that the cat's skeleton is feline and the heart is feline and yet the skeleton is different than the heart, those really are two. Yeah, there's no contradiction implied there. Both of those things, and they really are different, the skeleton and heart, both of them have some close relations to a cat or to felinity in the most proper sense.
0: But we may run into a problem still, which is that if these three statements use this is of predication, uh, the father is divine or the son is divine, the spirit is divine, then they seem incoherent with truth number four. Because they no longer seem to share the one substance, they seem to be three substances, three concrete entities. Remember, that's what substance means in the philosophical jargon.
1: Well, again, that's one thing it means. It's what it means in Chris Date's Trinitarian Speculations. But he's making a very important point here. Remember, claim number five is that the Father is not, the Son is not the Spirit. In other words, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they really are numerically distinct. You can't collapse any two of those together into one and the same thing. What it's saying is the Father's one thing, the Son's another, and the Spirit's another. That they're numerically distinct. Okay, but if they really are three things, and each one of them is divine, the primary meaning of divinity in a philosophical context is to be a god. It's whatever it is that makes the owner of that quality a god. It's godhood. You've got three things. Each of them has what it takes to be a god. Well, then you thereby have three gods. This is a problem that has bedeviled the Nicene tradition even since before that 381 creed. And three gods, of course, is inconsistent with only one God. And the way that Chris State wants to put that is that there's only one substance. That is only one being between the Father, Son, and Spirit. That there's only one God between them. Yeah, it is inconsistent with that.
0: If these truths, one, two, and three, use is a predication, then they seem logically incoherent with truth number four, even if they are coherent with truth number five.
1: I mean, one through three just are consistent with five, right? This thing's divine, this thing's divine, this thing's divine. Oh, and those are three different things. Right, now you just have three divine things. So logically, one, two, and three, and five could be true. But once you add in that there's only one God, now you've got a terrible problem. And there's no easy way out. You can get back from three gods to one God by saying that, At most, one of those is fully divine, divine in the primary sense, then you're going against small-c Catholic tradition. Or you could collapse the three and deny five. Well, they're not really three things, they're really one, and that's why they only amount to one God, and that's traditionally considered to be the heresy of modalism, like ancient modalistic monarchianism. So this realm of speculation is in a tough place even before you get anywhere near his claims 6 and 7. And we should add that some Trinitarians think that the doctrine of the Trinity implies contradictions, and that's okay. They think it's still true. For an unusually sophisticated version of this view, check out Trinity's podcast 324 and 325. A closely related view, like you see in the work of Dr. James Anderson is that, well, we're not saying that the Trinity implies actual contradictions, but the thing is, for all the world, it looks like that so. So, there's an appearance of incoherence here that we just can't get away from. He's not accepting either of those as a truly orthodox theory. Rejecting actual contradictions, yes, is very traditional. I think that was always assumed in the ancient tradition saying that there aren't apparent contradictions hmm it's a lot more ambiguous some but not others within trinitarian traditions are willing to countenance apparent contradictions that we can't figure out how to get rid of okay but he wants to try to get rid of them that's why he's playing this game
0: so When we talk about a doctrine of the Trinity that uh, that is both orthodox and logically coherent, what we're saying is that an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is logically coherent if it affirms each of these criteria without logically contradicting itself. And I'm going to offer what I take to be a model of the Trinity that is orthodox and logically coherent in just this way.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, what is this theory?
0: The beginning of an orthodox and logically coherent doctrine of the Trinity is to say that in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, I'd want to propose that is means something like subsists in the being of. Now, I'll explain that in a moment, but just l- lest anybody think that I'm sort of contradicting myself in what I've said in the past, I've used this very definition in my debate with Dale Tuggy. I made this very point, um, both in the uh, live debate we did and in our published edition of it, that when we say a person is a substance, like the Father is God, what I'm saying is the person that is the Father subsists in the being of God. What I am doing here, however, is further fleshing that out. Because at the time, and I'm still learning. Hopefully, all of you are learning too. If if any of you, are, you know, are, understand your worldview as a Christian exactly the same way you did 10 years ago, five years ago, even, or maybe even two years ago, you're not learning, and and you should repent. <laughs> I'm learning. Well, and in this case, I didn't know quite what I meant when debating Dale Tuggy by saying, "Person subsists in the being of God."
1: He's being very honest here, and I appreciate that. I knew that he didn't know what he meant by it. I knew that he was just reproducing what he thought was traditional language and kind of hoping for the best. And I push him kind of hard on this, especially towards the end of the book. But now he explains a little bit about what he was thinking then. I just
0: knew that person was abstract and substance is concrete and i think i might have said that p is uh, subsists in the being of s in the way that a property subsists uh in an object
1: i'm not sure if mr date is aware that he's just cracked open a big philosophical can of worms here there is no universally recognized abstract concrete distinction in philosophy There is an excellent article in the Stanford Encyclopedia on this called Abstract Objects, which I strongly recommend. But having said that, probably the most common idea that philosophers nowadays have when they distinguish between abstract realities or things and concrete realities or things is that, in their view, by definition, abstract things cannot be causes or effects. They don't take part in the network of causes and effects in the world. So a person, you know, can cause there to be a sound. A person can be made cold by their environment. So a person can enter into this network of causes and effects. But an abstract object like a number or a set or maybe a proposition, in the way that philosophers talk about propositions, uh, those can't be causes or effects. And they're often conceived of as necessarily existing and not as existing in any particular place or any particular time. So either they exist at all places and times or they exist at no places and times. But I think maybe what Mr. Date means by calling persons abstract is just that they are properties of a thing and not things in their own right. So they exist not independently, like a substance, in the sense he means, but they exist as an attribute, and so dependently on what they exist in. Now whether properties are abstract is another question that we'll get into, but I think he means to be saying that the persons of God are properties of God, but he's going to say in a minute that they're not abstract, but they're concrete. One more comment about this unique formula that he's coming back to and trying to, I guess, clarify and add some meat to, saying that a divine person subsists in the being of God. I would make a friendly suggestion here that you should just get rid of the unclear words subsist and being, and just say that the divine persons exist in God. And then say more about what you mean by in there. I think that's all he really needs to do. Maybe they're in God in the way that an individual property is in an object that has that property. Subsists can mean different things. For some authors, subsists means existing in the way that a substance exists, like a primary substance, the way he's talking about it. I'm not sure that's what he means. And why talk about the being of something when you can just talk about that thing? So again, friendly suggestion... Ditch the pretentious and unclear abstract terminology. Instead of saying that a divine person, quote, subsists in the being of God, why can't you say the same thing and indeed say it more clearly by saying that a divine person exists in God? And then go on to tell us a bit more about what you mean. Say more about that in. Okay, back to Christate.
0: So this is consistent with what I have debated uh, with uh, what I've argued in my debate with Dale Tuggy, um, but I want to try to flesh it out more today, and I'm beginning by fleshing that out to say that in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, is means something like subsists in the being of. So I could say this is Brandon, or, or Brandon is this person, Brandon is this human being. What I mean is that Brandon, the, the person that is Brandon, subsists in this human being, the being of this human.
1: Now, as I pointed out in the debate book, that doesn't sound right. His son Brandon is not a thing which bears some interesting relationship to this other thing, which is a certain human, right? Isn't Brandon that human himself? There's not Brandon and then also a human being in this picture, I hope. There shouldn't be those two things, right? Especially if one is a physicalist about human persons, like I believe Chris Date is. This physical thing, this this human being, that just is this son of his, right? Those aren't two things. Right? But he's starting with his speculations about the Trinity, and now he's applying them to human beings. Which gives you the weird result that, oh, there's the man Chris Date, and that's numerically distinct from Chris Date. Hmm. That doesn't sound right.
0: The person that you are looking, that you are being spoken to by right now, Chris, subsists in the being of the human that you can see on your screen.
1: Who is this human that I can see on my screen? Who is not Chris Date? Who Chris Date, quote, subsists in. No, Chris Date is a human. There's only one human on my screen right now. That's Chris Date. Christate and the human represented on my computer screen, those are one and the same. So then in the case of the Trinity, God, or as he likes to say, the being of God, will be one thing, and the Father will be another. Okay, but if they're both fully divine, that sounds like two gods. If only one of them's fully divine, well, suppose it's the Father. We've got a fully divine Father, that's orthodox so far as it goes, Um, but we don't have a fully divine god oops no i mean a god is just by definition fully divine right suppose we say it the other way god is fully divine but the father isn't well that's against nicene orthodoxy so to distinguish these two as different things seems problematic for a trinitarian because again if both are fully divine you've got two fully divine things and if one's fully divine but not the other that seems to go against the intentions of the tradition just as well. It seems like it's a goofy view about human beings, but it's not clear how this is going to get around obvious problems with Trinitarian speculations. But we have to keep in mind that he's already suggested that the, quote, persons of the Trinity are mere properties of a substance, and so not themselves substances or independently existing things, individual realities.
0: Whereas a statement like P1 is not P2, like the father is not the son, is does mean is not identical to. Okay? So the is and the P is S statements isn't quite the is of predication. It's not that the is changes, it's that the categories being compared change. In a statement like P is S, you're comparing an abstract with the concrete in which it subsists. But in a statement like P1 is not P2, you're comparing two abstracts.
1: Uh, okay. Again, I think by abstract, he just means to say that the person is a quality of the thing that it's in. So he's saying when you distinguish the persons, you say the father is not the son, that's denying an identity statement. Well, that seems good insofar as it goes. They differ from one another. They must be numerically distinct, right? But now he suggested that when we say that the Father is God, that really means that we've got two things here, the Father and God, and the first is in the second, maybe somewhat as an attribute is in the thing that has the attribute. Okay, well, this in-relationship that he's talking about, whatever else we say about it, it requires... That the two things are numerically distinct. Nothing could be in itself, right? So if one thing's in another, in this sense, we're talking about really two things. But again, it seems to me this isn't bothering him because he's demoted one of those things to being a mere property or attribute. If you make any kind of abstract, concrete distinction, you mean that nothing can be both. That's pretty much a given. How to draw that distinction is much disputed, but what's much agreed on is that if there is an abstract-concrete distinction, nothing's going to count as both abstract and concrete. Okay, so then this thing which is the Father has to be different than this thing which is God, because he says the Father is abstract and God, or the being of God, is concrete. One is abstract, the other is concrete, nothing could be both. Okay, well, it follows then that the Father is one thing and God is another. Those are numerically distinct. So I'm not sure he's quite followed out the logic of this relationship that he's suggesting, because it does clearly imply the distinctness of the two things involved, the person and the God which the person is in. But again, if I'm following along with his thoughts, He thinks that the distinction here doesn't matter, since these two are so closely related, the person being a property of God.
0: Now, what I mean by subsist, then, is that if X, if anything, subsists in substance S, then X is abstract and has no being independent of its concrete substance.
1: Okay, so... Here he's using another idea common to people who distinguish between abstract things and concrete things. It is very widely felt that an an abstract thing, in a sense, is ontologically cheap. They don't make a lot of demands on reality. If you start positing infinities of abstracta, you don't think that you're bloating your ontology. Because, in some sense, they're nothing over and above the concrete things. Or they're dependent on the concrete things. Anyway, adding them is not as costly as adding more concrete things into your worldview. So he's saying that a property that exists in something has no being or reality independent of the thing that it's in. So maybe it's just like an aspect of the thing or a way the thing is or something like that. That is a plausible view about properties specifically individual properties, as he's going to get into.
0: Take a red apple, for example, like the one on your screen. In the philosophical jargon, we would say there's one concrete substance, namely the object that is the apple. Now, of course, that is a compound substance, so there's millions and millions of atoms, each of which is its own concrete substance, but those collectively form the, con- the compound substance that is this apple. An example of an abstract that subsists in the substance that is the apple is the apple's redness. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the apple's redness has no being of its own. It's not concrete. It, it, um, it, it's not, uh, you can't take its redness and separate it from the apple in which that redness
1: subsists. Right, so on this way of thinking, you might say that the redness of the apple isn't a thing in its own right. It's just a way the apple is, or a mode of the apple, an aspect of the apple. Once you refer to the totality of the apple, you've already referred to its redness. Uh, It's not an additional thing, if I could put it that way.
0: The property that is the apple's redness subsists in a concrete substance, namely the apples being
1: right but again let's drop the pretentious terminology that's not doing anything you can say the same exact thing more clearly by saying that the apple's redness exists in the apple
0: but there's a problem here if i try to just simply apply the language of property to the the persons in the trinity i think we might run into a problem this is an article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of oh, Philosophy there's a bunch online, of problems uh, an article called Properties. And they write this. Properties are those entities that can be predicated of things, or in other words, attributed to them. And at least since Plato, who called them ideas or forms, properties are viewed as universals. In other words, as capable, in typical cases, of being instantiated by different objects, shared by them. Now... The problem here, or at least a problem here, is that a simple property is a universal, shared by all concrete substances that exemplify or instantiate it. And if this, this kind of simple property, is what the persons in the Trinity are, then they are identical, albeit exemplified multiple times over.
1: Okay, so he's just suggested that the persons in god are properties of god now that seems like it's going to raise all kinds of problems here's one of the problems if you're thinking that properties are universals they are classically conceived of as these timeless and spaceless realities that can be manifest or exemplified in multiple things at a time so for instance if there's such a property as humanity then this exists in some other realm, but somehow it's manifest here, where I am, and it's also manifest in Chris' date, and it's manifest in you. But it's really all one humanity. So there isn't my humanity, Chris's humanity, and your humanity. There's just this universal humanity, and somehow it manifests in these different places and different times. So if the persons are properties, they're going to turn out to be the same property, The same property manifesting in three ways, somehow in the same thing. But his point is, if the persons are properties, we're talking about a universal, they would be the same property, and that looks like it would collapse the persons. Of course, the obvious move there is to say that the persons aren't any universal property, but they are particular properties or property instances, which is the direction he's going to head in his speculations.
0: This is even more a problem if you believe that abstracts have concrete being. That form or ideal that Plato talks about, he thinks a lot of, uh, even today, some Christian philosophers think those properties or ideals or forms, they have real concrete existence in something like a realm of ideas. And that would make this even more problematic, because that would just mean that the um, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are just the same Property that exists outside of, you know, transcending the concrete being of God, you know, realm of ideas or something like that. So it becomes even more problematic.
1: Okay, he's getting a little bit confused here. Philosophers who think there is an abstract concrete distinction don't think anything is both abstract and concrete. So then if they say that properties are abstract, they're not going to also say that they're concrete. But he is. At the same time saying something correct here, which is as concerns properties or attributes or features that things have, they are conceived of sometimes as abstracta, traditionally called universals. However, and this also goes back to ancient times, they are sometimes treated like individual concrete things, things that are located in space and time, and things that have causal powers, things that can be causes and effects. So for instance, uh, a property of coldness. You could talk about this apple's coldness versus that apple's coldness. And there could be a cause for this apple's coldness. I just put this apple in the fridge for an hour and that caused the apple to be cold. And you might think of this apple's coldness as an individual attribute and as kind of a thing that's a component of the apple. Something kind of like a, part or ingredient of it and not merely something which is manifest in it like a universal so yes some philosophers think of properties as individual and even yes concrete things that are in objects
0: so i don't think that a simple property is going to necessarily solve our problem here however that same article makes an interesting distinction according to a different conception Properties are themselves particulars, not universals, but particulars. But those particulars aren't concrete particulars like a substance, they are abstract particulars. As so conceived, properties are nowadays commonly called tropes. This article, Properties, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, written by Francesco Aurelia and Michelle Paolini Pauletti, it links that word tropes to a different entry in the encyclopedia called Guess what? tropes (laughs) This one written by Anna Sophia Maorin or Morin or Morin something like that Anna Sophia writes tropes are things like the particular shape weight and texture of an individual object That there are tropes seems prima facie reasonable if we reflect on such things as perception I don't see color in general I always see the color of the particular object whose color I'm perceiving, right? So what exists when a trope exists is an abstract Particular, it's not concrete because it has no existence on of its own It subsists in the concrete substance in which it subsists, but it's also a particular not a universal Go back to this apple if its redness is a trope not just a simple property Then there is no other instance there there is no other identical trope the redness of this apple just is the redness of this apple and none other even if the redness of this apple and the redness of some other apple are virtually identical um instantiations of a redness trope or or a redness property right so maybe we could say that the the property is universal and the trope is the instantiation the particular instantiation of that universal
1: So this is a direction in which the ancient speculation turned after Plato suggested that all properties were universals. Aristotle and others thought of properties as individual things in the objects, not abstracta existing in some other realm. A lot of philosophers said, well, I'd like to have both of these items in my theory. I would like to believe that there are universal properties and also particular properties. And say in the cases of essence like humanity or caninity, there's universal human nature, but then there's also the human nature of this guy, that lady, etc. Okay, might wonder if that's too many properties. Might wonder if we should just stick with one or the other conception of a property, but that has been a popular speculative option. And just one more thing about tropes as is mentioned in that encyclopedia entry. For a lot of trope theorists, they want to say that tropes are the basic elements of the physical world around us. They want to explain things or substances in terms of tropes, or even reduce substances in terms of tropes. So maybe, strictly speaking, there is no apple there. You don't have to posit a substance in the classical sense. You just have tropes of redness, hardness, uh, maybe a certain physical structure, and so on. And the apple is just a bundle of tropes. That's all the apple is. It's nothing over and above this collection of individual properties together. That's probably not a direction in which a Trinitarian theorist is going to want to go to say that God is nothing over and above the various individual qualities that God has. But anyway, let's get back to Christate.
0: So then this apple's redness and some other apple's redness, they might both be instantiations or exemplifications of a property called redness, but this redness is this apple's redness, and the other redness is the other apple's redness. So they're distinct, they're particular, and yet they're abstract. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about tropes. It's like a property, except that a property, traditionally understood, is a universal, whereas a trope is a particular. Both properties and tropes are abstracts, but a property is an abstract universal, whereas a trope is an abstract particular.
1: I don't think particular properties have to be conceived of as abstracta for the reasons I said a minute ago. But again, by saying that something is abstract, I think he mainly just means that it's a property that exists in something. Now, again, tropes, a lot of times the motivation is to just talk about tropes and leave substances aside so you'd have properties being basic um, you don't also have to talk about what they exist in but a more traditional approach to individual properties does yes say that properties distinctively exist in whatever it is that has them so traditionally people who believe in individual properties never mind recent trope theory people who believe in individual qualities or properties or features They do distinguish between the features and then what has them. And they think of the features as existing in that substance that has them. There's a distinctive in there.
0: Definitionally, a trope is the abstract yet particular exemplification of what might be a a universal property. And if this, a trope, is what the persons are, then they are distinct, and yet they subsist. In a single concrete substance.
1: Okay, so what he suggested is that the persons in God are properties of God, not universal properties, but individual properties. They exist in God in the way that an individual property exists in an object that has it. To use his example, in the way that this instance of redness or the redness of this apple exists in this apple.
0: So we can flesh out my earlier statement a little bit more. In a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, P is also a trope or abstract particular. And is means something like subsists in the being of. And then in a statement like P1 is not P2, is means is not identical to. Now I think we're getting something, to, uh, getting to something that is logically coherent.
1: Well, it's not clear how logically coherent this is. the reasons I explained a minute ago, but now you have an additional baggage, which is that you've said that the Father and Son and Spirit are properties. Could persons be properties? Can properties or features or attributes do what these persons do in the New Testament? Hmm. We'll have to come back to this.
0: It does raise the question, what in the world could it mean for person in this Trinitarian distinction between person and being to be an abstract particular? That's where it really starts to bake the noodle. What could it mean for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to each be an abstract particular rather than a concrete entity?
1: Next week on the Trinity's podcast, more metaphysical mayhem. As Mr. Date continues his quest for a viable Trinity theory, he's going to appeal to a social science article in an attempt to develop his suggestion that the so-called persons of the Trinity are individual properties of God. This week's Thinking Music has been the track The Night is Calling by Kraft As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can listen to or download that entire track.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at
1: trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.